My name is Kevin, and I am sitting in for Jeff once more. Jeff is gone with his family for the weekend, taking a, a well-deserved week off. Even though you haven't seen him for a few weeks, he has been working, and he's taking a little time off, so I'm sitting in for him again. I recently read the novel, the... the count. I bet you guys are... Sh- All right. I recently read the novel The Count of Monte Cristo by, by Dumas. Maybe you've heard of it. It appeared on one of those lists of books that you really ought to read, and so I figured, figured okay, fine, I'll, I'll read it. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's a really, really good story. And I like the fact that the author created a storyline that stretched over a really, really long period of time. We, we first meet the hero, uh, Edmond Dante, when he's 19 years old, and the story follows about 30 years of his life. And by extending the story over that period of time, it gives the author a chance to build plot depth and, and character complexity that really wouldn't be possible if it covered you know, a, a year or a few months. And I like that. I like stories that are well-developed and have complex characters and interesting plot twists and long timelines. And of course, when it, when it comes to long timelines, there's one story that, that really far surpasses all the others. There's a story that spans thousands of years and, and features a, a vast array of characters, and the main character is irresistible. The story is partially told in the Bible, It's the story of of God and humanity. It's a story of what God has done for us, what God is doing for us, and what he will do for us in the future. I better at least put it up there. And that story would be compelling if we were looking at it from the outside, but we're not. We're we're in it. And we have a vested interest in knowing how it's going to turn out. Sometimes that story is summarized as follows. Creation, fall, Redemption and restoration, which is true as far as it goes, but to be honest, I've never really liked that formulation because it sounds, well, to me at least, it sounds a little bit boring, and the story itself isn't boring. The most awesome God creates the universe, and at the pinnacle of creation, he, he makes man, that portion of the universe that he loves the most, and God's enemy comes and tempts man, and man, man messes up big time. And sin is brought into the world and there's a separation between the creator and his beloved creation. But God sets in motion a plan, a plan to defeat his enemy and to redeem mankind and the whole world. And he selects people, his chosen people, to carry forward this plan. God gives his people rituals and festivals, symbols and prophecies that all point to, that all foreshadow this salvation and the triumph that is coming. And there are heroes and villains and journeys and battles, plagues, miracles, love stories. There's even a talking donkey. And through it all, God is working everything to fulfill his plan. When the time is right, God himself comes to earth as a savior. The author writing himself into the story. And he defeats his enemy and offers salvation to mankind and the whole earth in a way that no one expected, even though it had been predicted for a thousand years. 
And God's followers are tasked with spreading the story to the nations, but it's a battle. The Holy Spirit is energizing his people and God's enemies are fighting them every step of the way. And it's all building and building and building to that final spectacular climax when the plan that God has been shaping and guiding for thousands of years finally reaches its awesome conclusion. That's not boring. Over the past few weeks, we've been discussing Mark chapter 13, and some of the verses in Mark chapter 13 point to this final event, this, this grand climax and culmination of history. Chapter, uh, verses 26 and 27 say, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So Jesus is coming back. And it's not just here in Mark where we learn about it. There are over 300 verses in the New Testament that speak of Jesus' return. To the New Testament writers, this was a popular topic. But as we discussed a few weeks ago, we don't talk about it very much. Well, today today we're going to talk about it. What happens when Jesus comes? What do we have to look forward to? Well, number one, he will come in great power. Let's read that verse in Mark again. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You know, the first time Jesus came, he came in weakness as a child, in submission. He came to serve. The next time he comes, it will be in power. And do you notice some strange language here? It says Jesus is not coming on the clouds or through the clouds. It says he's coming in clouds. Literally, it means he's bringing the clouds with him. Seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? But a first century Jew would have known exactly what that meant. You see, throughout the Old Testament, when God appears in glory, he often appears in a cloud. The cloud itself seems to be containing or somewhat representing the awesomeness of God's glory. Of course, we can think of the the, the pillar of cloud that led led the Israelites, and there are many examples. Let's look at a, a couple others. When God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, it says this, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And later, in 1 Kings, Solomon builds the temple to the Lord and the Lord descended into his temple. And it says this, when the priests, with, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. The first time he came, Jesus came humbly. The next time he comes, he will come in great power and glory. By telling his disciples that he's coming in clouds, Jesus is telling them, when I come back, you will know that I am the living God. What else happens? Well, when Christ returns, 
the dead will be resurrected. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. You know, there are a few things that our popular culture cannot get right about Christianity. One of them is this ridiculous notion that the eternal destiny is for our souls to float up to some tedious, bland, boring, vanilla place they call heaven where we sit around on clouds and do a whole lot of nothing that's interesting. And I can see where people are cynical about that. If, if that's what they have in their minds, what heaven is, that image doesn't appeal much to me either. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Though we may spend some time separated from our bodies if we die before Christ returns, the Bible is clear that when he does return, our bodies will be physically resurrected. We're told we will receive a glorified body like Jesus received when he was raised. Luke chapter 24 describes a scene where after he was resurrected, Jesus appeared to the disciples. It says, Jesus stood among them and said, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. But he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still don't believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and he ate it in their presence. Jesus' resurrected body could be seen and touched and heard. He walked, he ate, but he also passed through walls and he could appear and, and, and disappear. He had what we will have, a body that's similar to what we have now, but glorified glorified in the sense that it will have some extra features to it. But most importantly, the Bible says it will be incorruptible. That means without physical defect and incapable of sin. What else happens when Jesus returns? Judgment, universal judgment. Revelation 20 says... Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The future goals of justice and final judgment are central to God's story of human history. Those whose names are written in the book of life are saved from punishment. But the Bible says that all will be judged according to what they have done. We're going to talk about this uh, further a little bit later on. And ultimately, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Again from Revelation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. It wouldn't make much sense to have a physical resurrected body unless we were to live in a material world. The final destiny of the Christian is an eternal physical reality that the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth. We're not given many details of what this will be like, but in the same way as God has promised to redeem our bodies, he has promised to redeem the rest of creation. There are some hints in the Bible that this new earth, this new heavens and the new earth will have some similarities to the world we currently live in, but it too will be glorified and incorruptible. Most importantly of all, heaven where God dwells and earth where we dwell will become one and God will dwell with us for all eternity. So those four things, Jesus coming in power, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment and the new heavens and the new earth are the final spectacular climax and the culmination of God's story. This is the moment that every act of creation, every interaction with man, every line of scripture, and every answered prayer has been building toward and pointing to. Does that get you excited? Do you yearn for that? Are you saying, Lord, bring it? Or, or maybe you're thinking, yeah, yeah, wow, that's, that's cool, that sounds good, but you know, I, I'm not really in a hurry. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. I, I'm healthy and I have a great family and make a good living. If that's you, then, then yeah, you are blessed. But I'd encourage you to hear me out because I think there are some good reasons why all of us should be looking toward and yearning for the coming of the Lord. Let's take a second look at the resurrection, for example. My wife Sue is very close to her cousin Mitzi. Mitzi is a wonderful person. She's intelligent, smart, funny, articulate. She almost always has a smile on her face, and she loves Jesus. But when Mitzi was in elementary school, she was diagnosed with um, rheumatoid arthritis. And in the years since, this disease has had devastating effect on her body. She's been in a wheelchair for many years, and her joints and bones have been so severely twisted and disfigured, she, she can't function and she can't do all the things that we take for granted. She's in constant pain. She's had countless surgeries and she requires round-the-clock caregivers to help feed her and, and bathe her and, and help her function. It, it's hard to imagine that a person's body can be that badly broken. Now, when Mitzi looks forward to the resu resurrection of the body, you think she's saying, eh, she's saying yes come Lord Jesus and if you're someone who's experienced a severe breakdown in your body I expect you can relate 
you, you know that feeling, the excitement of looking forward to receiving that body that is glorified and incorruptible. If that's not you and you're relatively healthy, can you put yourself in the shoes of someone who really needs this? Are you longing for what would be best for them? The resurrection promises a new beginning. But what else does a resurrection mean? Do you know someone who's created a bucket list? Maybe you have. For for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, a bucket list is a list of things that you really want to do before you die. You know, scuba dive with manta rays or climb the Eiffel Tower or, or learn to play the kazoo, I don't know. The motivation behind this totally makes sense if you have no belief in the afterlife or if you're anticipating a, a dismal, boring, bland eternity sitting on, sitting on clouds playing harps. If that's the case, it makes perfect sense to get everything you can out of life now because this is as good as it gets. But if we're promised a new glorified body and a new eternity in a glorified earth, that changes the equation, doesn't it? The new earth will be filled with things to smell and touch and feel and explore. That promises experiences far beyond what we have here. When we look at it that way, doesn't that change how we prioritize life now? I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you've been put in prison. You've been found guilty of some crime and and like Edmond Dante in the Count of Monte Cristo, you're stuffed into a stinky, dark, damp cell in the basement of some dungeon. You expect that someday you'll be released, but you don't really know when. What will you be focusing on? Will you be making a bucket list of the things you really want to get done in prison before you're released? (laughs) Probably not. Or, Or are you focusing your energies on that day when you get out? In the story, Edmond Dante spent all of his time preparing for life after he was released from prison or after he got out of prison. If we lose sight of the resurrection, we will convince ourselves that we need to get everything out of life now. But when we focus on the resurrection, when we long for it, we can fully serve Christ with our heart and soul and mind and strength because there's no fear of missing out. What we have coming is far better. So the resurrection adjusts our priorities. What about final judgment? In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, in his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you and God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. Now, I think many Christians are a bit ambivalent about the coming judgment. Maybe they would agree that, yeah, it's necessary, but it's not not often a nice thing to think about, and it's easier just to avoid thinking about. I'd like to give you a few reasons why the coming judgment is worth thinking about and it's worth focusing on. First of all, final judgment is the foundation of forgiveness. As Christians, We are called to forgive those who sin against us. But honestly, can we do that unless we have confidence that one day justice will be served? 
If someone has sinned grievously against you, and I don't mean hurt your feelings or wounded your pride, but someone has hurt you deeply or taken something from you which might affect you for the rest of your life, can you really find peace in the idea that this person will get away with it? I don't think we can, and that's not what God is asking of us. You see, when God is asking us to forgive, he's not saying, don't worry about it. Let's just pretend that didn't happen. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, oh, yeah, I saw that. That was awful. But let me deal with it. On the day of judgment, everyone will be confronted with the wrongs they have done. It says in Luke 8, there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. When we live our lives with the day of judgment in view, we can let go. We can truly forgive others knowing that final, complete, and perfect justice will be served. Another reason why final judgment is worth thinking about is because it offers justice for the oppressed. The day of judgment will bring justice, ultimate justice, where wrongs are made right and people are punished or rewarded for what they have done. And I suspect for many of us, this may not be something that we spend time longing for, probably because we've never really been oppressed. But you know what? This past year, over 100,000 Christians were killed for their faith. Many of them died horrible deaths. A further 600,000 Christians suffered severe persecution. These aren't people who are teased about their faith at work. These are people who have been beaten or had their homes burned or their children taken away or been put in prison because they love Jesus. Do you think these people are longing for the day when justice is done? Or perhaps you've heard Stacey DeVries talk about her experiences working in Rwanda with survivors of the genocide. You know, in Rwanda, in four months in 1994, over a million, or almost a million people were murdered. Many more were, were abused and mutilated. There were over two million refugees that were forced out of their homes and and in some cases out of the country. Do you think these people are looking forward to when the day when justice is done? I'm going to read you a quote from an author named Neil Plantinga. He says, The second coming of Jesus Christ is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. Those who are oppressed don't yawn when someone mentions the return of Jesus Christ. The person who wants justice and redemption wants the kingdom of God and the coming of the kingdom depends on the coming of the king. The second coming of Jesus Christ means justice will at last fill the earth. And if your own life is too comfortable to want the second coming of Jesus, you must look across the world to the lives that aren't. Finally, the day of judgment is worth thinking about because no one escapes. It's hard to sugarcoat this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, when that day comes, you're twisting in the wind. No one can stand and defend his actions before the most holy God. 
And absent the forgiveness of Christ, there is no hope. If you're a follower of Christ, you probably have friends and loved ones who are not. They need prayer, support, and love, and as the Holy Spirit directs, they need to hear God's story. The new heavens and the new earth. We talked earlier about this great story of God and humanity that we're a part of. If this was a fairy tale, the new heavens and the new earth would be the place where everyone lived happily ever after. But what does that even mean? We're not talking about harps and clouds again, are we? And what is happy? Is that the goal? I mean, someone who scores a touchdown is happy. Someone who's high on pot might be happy. Is that what we're promised? The harps won't sound very good. If not, then what? The author C.S. Lewis wrote about a unique feeling that almost everyone experiences that he felt gave us some clues. As Lewis describes it, this feeling is a deeply emotional pining or longing or desire that is, that is never fulfilled. It's a desire for something that we've never even experienced and the longing is sweeter than the fulfillment of any normal desire. Earthly experiences can spark this longing, but they never satisfy. I think it's different for everyone. I sometimes experience this listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or the finale in Stravinsky's Firebird Suite or, or reading that part of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where, where Aslan comes back to life. You might find it elsewhere. But C.S. Lewis believed this deep, passionate longing that no earthly experience could satisfy pointed to something beyond. He wrote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Let me read that again. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. These longings are pointers to another place. They point us to that heavenly home that we were created for. Well, I started talking about stories, and we're going to end with stories. Lucas, uh, Lucas, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis was a gifted theologian, but he was an amazing storyteller. And it was through his stories that he did the best job of describing what the new heavens and the new earth would be like, how he envisioned them. Lewis saw our current world as a weak replica or a faded shadow of the world to come. He envisioned the new heavens and the new earth as being altogether brighter and more colorful and richer and firmer, more real and vibrant like a live orchestra is compared to a, a scratchy recording. And it is in that future world that our deepest longings will find their fulfillment. I'd like to leave you with a scene from one of Lewis's books called The Last Battle. This is the last of the Narnia Chronicles and the scene takes place after the land of Narnia has reached its end. We pick up the story where the children are exploring this new land that Aslan has brought them to. 
Mark, can you play that, please? Interesting image, isn't it? <clears throat> we have a lot to look forward to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've promised that you will, you will return and bring many awesome things for those who follow you. And we yearn for that and we hope for it. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. 